Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. This morning, as God has ordained for us to be, I remember when I was a sophomore in high school, we were going to do a missions trip to Tampico, Mexico. And so we were going through this training, and part of the training was reading through the book of Acts. And if you're not familiar with the book of Acts, there are a few different times uh, throughout the book of Acts where, where uh, the author is just so clear about God's sovereignty and salvation. And one of those passages is one in which God encourages Paul, and he says, I have many in this city. I, I will see many that I have foreordained, foreknown, predestined to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And me, in all of my 16 or 17-year-old wisdom, I said, raised my hand slowly in the midst of this study as we were with a number of other kids my age, and I said, wait a minute, does God choose people to follow him, or do we choose to follow him? Does God choose people to follow him, or do we choose to follow him? In all of my 16 or 17-year-old wisdom, I just wanted to raise up this controversial issue, and the youth pastor kind of stumbled around for a little bit, and finally, realizing I was in over my head, I just kind of stopped him, and I said, never mind, I've got it, we're good. And the youth pastor kind of chuckled to himself and looked at me and the other youth leaders and said, oh, you got this, you understand it then, you're fine? And just kind of laughed at me, right? And rightfully so, in all of my embarrassment and arrogance kind of mixed together in that teenage awkwardness, I thought I had kind of solved this problem of generations before us. I said, you completely understand sovereignty and responsibility? Of course I do. This morning, this passage brings us to the precipice of this very debate, I love what Tozer says. Tozer describes human responsibility and divine, responsibility, divine initiative like a cruise ship. The cruise ship has set a destination. It will get to its destination. It's ordained. It will happen. But all of the participants on the cruise ship have the freedom to go about the deck and under, uh, you know, into their rooms or eat as much of the buffet as they want, right? There are many Christians today, though, who think such thinking is more like a cruise ship in March of 2020, right? Where you get sickly and lost at sea for years on end. Okay, that was a joke. Just follow with me here, right? How are we to navigate these two ideals? We read in Scripture things like this, John chapter 1. All who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, right? It would seem, oh yeah, we, we, we make ourselves children of God. But then in verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We have sovereignty and responsibility meshed together. We do things. We call ourselves to pray for unbelieving people. We, we go to a sovereign God and say, God, only you can unlock the hearts and minds of these people who do not know you. But we also take apologetics classes and we read books on evangelism. See, Genesis 25 invites us into this discussion. It invites us to consider a sovereign God who initiates and a hardened people 
and their responsibility. So here's our big idea. It's pretty simple. God chooses who will receive his covenant. You can hear even in it the the language. We receive willingly, but first God chooses sovereignly. We want to just kind of dig into this passage and find out. And really, there's a a pretty simple split in our passage. There's the unpromised descendants of of Abraham in verses 1 through 18. And then there's the promised descendant or the promised descendant in, in verses 19 through 34. And I want to kind of dig into this passage, and I want to understand it, but first we have to ask God, and I want to come to him again and just say, God, give us clarity of thinking. Give us an open heart and mind that we might see your word fresh. Lord, we ask now that you would do that. Open our eyes, unstop our ears, that we can see you with clarity, and we can glory in the vision that you show us here this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We want to start in 25, verses 1 through 18, where we talk about Abraham's unpromised descendants. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, and I promise I'm only going to skip over it for a second, but we're going to prom- uh, promptly move forward to verses 12 through 18 because there's parallelisms that happen here, and we just kind of want to highlight those. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimram and Jokshan and Medan and Midian, Ishbak and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. These sons of Dedan were Asherim, Ledeshim, and Leumim. Uh, the sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanak, Ebida, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. Now look, fast forward to verse 12. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons. Ishmael named them in order of their birth. Nebioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Ab. Abdeel or Adbeel, Mibsim, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jetur, Naphish, and Kadima. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael's 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. You're saying, thank you, Jason, for reading all of those names. Well, just, you don't know how much I have to practice these things, right? And so we read these portions and we say, okay, great. These are all the dead people that came from Abraham, right? Well, we see some similarity in the way that it's described. Keturah and Ishmael, they're compared. Uh, and, and there are points of commonality between these two sections. First, uh, we define who the mother is. We, we see whose Keturah line, Keturah's line is and who Hagar's line is. And, and the children are all named in verses 2 through 4 or verses 12 through 16. The people are placed in in just geography of where they settle, and all of these things are kind of uh, walked through. But one of the things that we might not notice is that the inheritance of Isaac is protected. Uh, We see this specifically in verse 5 when when, um, it's recorded for us that Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. 
And in verse 6, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away. Remember how, how Abraham had sent away Hagar and Ishmael while uh, Abraham was about to have or had just had Isaac? And so God is preserving the faithful promise that he has given to Isaac through Abraham. Um, Verses 7 through 11, then, what we see is we see the story of Abraham's death and burial. Look at verse 7. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There, Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. And after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and settled at, and Isaac settled at Ber Lahai Roy. See, Abraham's death and burial highlights the goodness of God to Abraham. See, first we see that Abraham lived a long life in verses 7 through 8, right? Uh, He lived this 175 years. And look at all these qualifiers that describe it, right? He's a good old age, an old man, full of years. Moses is highlighting for us the blessing of God on Abraham, that he has all of these years, all of this kind of logged. But then we see that he has a a family-oriented burial in verses 9 through 10. Both of his sons show up, right? You thought your family gatherings were awkward. Well, consider this one. The last time Jacob and Ishmael were together was when Ishmael was 13 years old, and he was laughing at Jacob's mom, right? And this is just an awkward situation. But then in verse 11, it highlights that Abraham passes his blessing on to Isaac. Verse 11 is worth our attention, isn't it? After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. Abraham dies, and as God promised, his blessing and covenant pass on to Isaac. God doesn't start shopping for another candidate like Abraham. He doesn't start kind of looking around to see, who else can I bestow my blessing on? No, he's going to bestow his blessing upon the physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac. Isaac is the recipient now of God's promise according to God's promise. We kind of look at this and we can kind of look and say, okay, wait a minute. Uh, God's promise isn't based on parentage. And you're saying, wait a minute. How is God's promise not based on parentage when Isaac is the one receiving the blessing as the son of Abraham? But we recognize that there are seven other candidates that could have received that blessing. There's the sons of Keturah, right? These six individuals that were born to this concubine of Abraham. There's the one son through Hagar, Ishmael, who does not receive the blessing. But the one son given to Sarah, Isaac, is the one who will receive God's blessing. See, what this shows us is it doesn't matter who your daddy is to make you part of God's covenant community. In fact, this remains true for us today. If you're with us this morning, your parents are believers in Jesus, that doesn't necessarily mean that you will be. 
Parents, your faith in Jesus doesn't transfer to the next generation. God requires faith of all of his children. I have people some, sometimes say to me, you know, I'll describe I'm a pastor, uh, you know, I, I work in a church, you know, etc. And they'll say, oh, that's so great. And they'll describe to me their life in the church. And they'll say, I have always been a Christian. I've always been a Christian. I know what they mean by this. Most likely they mean that uh, they've been a part of a Christian culture since their birth. They were dedicated in the church. They were baptized in the church. They were married in the church. They were in the church every Wednesday and Sunday. But the truth of the matter is, if everyone is born a sinner, rebellious to God, someone has to be converted to be a Christian. If you're here with us this morning and think that your faith in Jesus is a matter of your heritage, I suggest that you have business to do with God. There are no grandchildren in the kingdom of God. There are only those who are brought into God's family through faith in Jesus, adopted to his table. Paul makes this point in Romans chapter 9, and I want to pull this text up that we can look at. Romans chapter 9 is just this thick, meaty passage for us to look at. Paul writes this, I am speaking with truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promise. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as, the word of, it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descendants from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are of his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. See, that word there in verse 6, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Paul is simultaneously expressing great concern for the people of Israel, but also laying out this this idea that our Jewish heritage, our great-great-great-grandfather Abraham doesn't necessarily make us right with God as he's speaking to uh, of Jews. That is to say, it didn't matter who was the trunk of your family tree, the children of promise are counted as offspring. That's what Paul says here with such clarity. See, it doesn't matter how far back you can trace your lineage, how far back you can trace yourself to Abraham or to some believer in Christ or whatever else. God is doing business with you, calling you to faith in Jesus. So we see, even in these early parts, that it doesn't matter who your father is, you still have to reckon with God. But we also might look at these other descendants of Isaac, or of Abraham, excuse me, Isaac and Esau and Jacob. How does, God promise, how does God's promise affect those physically born of a promise bearer? And what we see in verses 19 through 34 is that Abe has a promised descendant. As we look here, start in verses 19 through 21. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. 
Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Let's just stop there for a second. There's a struggle that happens in this passage. In fact, we'll see three different struggles as we kind of describe it. The first is this struggle for children. Rebecca is barren, it says in verse 21. Now, there's this long history that we've been seeing in Genesis of, of just barrenness. In fact, we saw Sarah was barren. We, we'll see that Rachel also has some issues with becoming pregnant. And now Rebecca here is also barren. And every time we see this issue of barrenness in the, in the story of Genesis, we see it as an emphasis of the sovereignty of God. So Sarah is barren in 11, chapter 11, verse 30, and the next, like, seven chapters deal with uh, God's faithfulness to Sarah and Abraham. He promises a child and then he delivers it in verse 20 or in chapter 21. In chapter 20, we see that the Lord closed the wombs of the house of Abimelech because they had kind of uh, wronged Abraham in this specific way. And so until Abraham steps up and prays for them, all of the, the wombs of the house of Abimelech are closed. Nobody will have any children. Later on, Rachel will have trouble conceiving, but we'll see God's faithfulness work out with both Leah and Rachel in those sections. Now, for Rebecca, specifically, what's notable is that this barrenness lasts some 20 years. If you look at verse 20, Isaac, um, Isaac and Rebecca were married when Isaac was 40 years old. But if we move ahead to verse 26, we see that they don't have Jacob and Esau until he's 60 years old. So he has this gap of 20 years where Rachel, or Rebecca and, and Isaac cannot have children. Now, to some of us, this issue of infertility is especially pressing, isn't it? We wish that we could just pray a prayer and have the issue resolved, like has, as happens here with Isaac and Rebecca. But we also recognize that perhaps God has something deeper, not to be flippant or, or, or just kind of passive about this situation or trite, but we're reminded that God has purpose in our heartache. And so look again at verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now look at verse 22. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. And afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So the struggle Extends. It's not just a struggle to have children. What happens is there is a struggle between these children. 
And we see this in verses 22 through 28. Look at Rebecca's question in verse 23. She's having these kind of stirrings in her pregnancy. These children are like fist fighting in her belly. You ever see that for ladies who are pregnant? I remember watching one night as my son's elbow went from one hemisphere of my wife's stomach to the other, right? Hemisphere. That was probably not a global reference to my wife's stomach. That was not good. Sorry. But this question, she rises up in verse 23. If it is thus, why is this happening to me? Derek Kidner kind of comes along and he translates it. He says, if so, why am I? If this is happening, if God has removed this barrenness from me, if God has brought me to be married to Isaac to perpetuate the line, why am I going through these struggles, through these hardships? There's a struggle in Rebecca to see God's purpose. Why did God alleviate barrenness to bring such pregnancy difficulties? And so she inquires of the Lord. In verse 23, we get this answer, this prediction. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. If, if Genesis 12 sets the tone of, of all of Genesis 12 through 25 or 24, this passage sets the tone for the next 10 chapters. This division that is described here will paint the picture for us of Jacob's entire life. In fact, as the prophet Hosea looks back on the life of Jacob, he says this in Hosea 12, 3, he says, in the womb he took his brother by the heel and in his manhood he strove with God. This person, Jacob, is just always finding difficulty around every corner, and he wants to just be at odds with everyone around him. He's just a usurper by his very nature. And so we see this prediction in verse 23, and we see the practice in verses 24 through 26. Esau is born. He's red and hairy. He's like Andy Dalton in the womb. And Jacob comes out, and he's clutching the heel of his brother, in fact, Jacob gets his name from this episode. In fact, Jacob's name means, may he be at the heels. And, and Isaac and Rebekah mean this as this sense of blessing. May he always be uh, always there. May God always kind of be advocating for him as he's always kind of present. But it becomes kind of this moniker, this description of Jacob's life as he becomes one who's always undermining, always usurping, always working behind the scenes. He's constantly disruptive and undermining to those around him. And so we've seen the prediction, we've seen the practice, and finally we see the persons themselves in verse 27 and 28. We see what's good about Esau, right? He's a hunter. He's a hunter. I am not a hunter. So I have nothing to say about this point. He's a man of the field. He's comfortable with a bow and an arrow. He's comfortable out and about in the wilderness. But how do we describe Jacob? He's quiet. He lives in tents. That is to say, there isn't any discernible skill or identity to him. 
And all of this is summarized in this particular incident that's given to us in the scriptures in verses 29 through 24. The prophecy of verse 23, the clash of persons, the personalities, all of these things are summarized for us in verse 29. Look with me there in verse 29. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So here's the situation, right? Esau is out being the man of the field. He's out just working, earning, uh, collecting meat and various things for his family. And he comes in and he says, I am exhausted. I am famished. And, And the solution is food. Give me food right now. I need food. And the first thing he does is he sees his brother Jacob making lentil stew. And I gotta be honest with you, if it were lentil stew, Birthright's not worth it, right? Give me a steak, right? Something else. And Esau is famished. He is exhausted. And he's willing, uh, as Jacob kind of pushes him and pushes him and says, sell me your birthright. You can have this juicy, delicious stew, right? And Jacob pushes and pushes, and Esau finally gives away his birthright. Now notice the flippancy of verse 34. Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. He ate and drank and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. We've got to remember, that's a big deal in this passage, isn't it? Think about all of those sons of Abraham who were passed over who didn't get the blessing of God, and when Esau is in the perfect position, the firstborn son, the hunter, the skilled person, the individual, he just despises that birthright and gives it away for a cup of red stuff. Esau exchanges the blessing of God for a bowl of lentil soup. I wonder if we might say that Esau was arrogant enough to think that such a privilege was deserved. That there was no way in Esau's mind that anyone could strip him of his birthright and therefore he just flippantly played with it. And it reminds us this morning that promise isn't just, buried, or isn't just not based upon our parentage. That promise can't be based upon our practice either. Esau was far and away the preferable candidate for God's blessing. Esau's stronger. He's more skilled. He's the privileged firstborn. The passage seems to highlight all of what made Esau great, but it minimizes any notable skill about Jacob. Esau would be the captain of the football team. He's the one voted most likely to succeed. He was the natural heir to Isaac's blessing from God. But God tells us that the older, that's Esau, will serve the younger before he's even born. It's as if to say, never mind convention and tradition. God's kingdom isn't contingent upon your expectation. And spoiler alert, eventually Isaac, Esau's biggest fan, will be tricked into giving 
Jacob Esau's rightful blessing. Paul tells us in Romans 9, uh, 10 through 13, that we aren't chosen by God because of our good works. In fact, we're going to pull up this passage. This is right after the passage we just read in Romans chapter 9. Uh, actually, uh, I'll read it from Romans chapter 9. I think we got the wrong reference up there. Romans chapter 9, verse 10. If you want to look there with me, you're invited to do so. Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. When they had done neither good nor bad. See, God chose Jacob before he did anything right or wrong. And for us this morning, it means that all of our our do-gooding can't save us. And all of our worst, heinous moments can't keep us from salvation. God doesn't look for the best and brightest. He looks for the weak, the incapable, which is all of us in God's view. Remember what what Paul said earlier in this letter? He said, uh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in chapter 3. That all of us are incapable of earning God's favor. But he tends to pick out the down and out. He tends to pick those who are far from him, those who are least capable of buoying themselves up. God is one who picks the shepherd boy David to establish his people, not Saul, the tall, handsome king. Someone said that Saul was tall, but that was all. David, the shepherd boy, is exalted by God's favor. God chooses Paul, the murderous persecutor of his church, to build his church, to take the gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. He chooses a teenager from a backwoods town called Bethlehem to be the mother of the Savior that he has sent. See, God looks for lowly things to bring exaltation to because it highlights his goodness and mercy. See, the truth is, the sum total of this, the up, upshot of all of this passage is that God calls as he pleases. And if we look again at Romans chapter 9, verse 10, and also Rebecca, when had, she had conceived by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Why does God call? How, on what basis does he call his people? Solely upon his divine prerogative. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. Why does God call people to himself? For his glory. So that We have no other contingencies to our salvation. We produce nothing to earn divine grace. That is, there is no other reason why God calls other than God himself. 
See, the truth is that grace that is contingent upon anything other than God's sovereign choice ceases to be grace and instead becomes work. See, here's what's fascinating is that Genesis chapter 25 is quoted in at least two New Testament passages. We've already looked at Romans chapter 9 where we see that, that Paul is making this emphasis upon God's divine purpose. But we also see that this incident of Esau and the stew is also recorded in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 15 through 17. Owen, go ahead and pull up the next slide here, Hebrews chapter 12. Okay. Sorry. Hebrews chapter 12 mentions the, uh, the failing of Esau. It recognizes that Esau had fallen short of, of what God had required of him. I'll look it up for you. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 15 through 17. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessings, he was rejected for he found no chance, chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. See, what Romans 9 emphasizes in the sovereignty of God, Hebrews chapter 12 emphasizes in the responsibility of Esau. The author of Hebrews looks at the human causality of Esau's birthright conundrum. And while Paul emphasizes divine initiative and sovereign purpose, Hebrews sees Esau's responsibility and failure. We see that Esau is fully responsible in the eyes of Scripture for his failures, but we also see that Jacob cannot take credit for his blessing. The Scriptures simultaneously hold Esau as fully responsible and Jacob as divinely blessed. Are you tracking with me here? What we're seeing is that God is initiating blessing upon his people like Jacob, like Isaac, like Abraham, but he's also finding fault with Esau because Esau has not acted responsibly. The truth is this morning, both divine initiative and human responsibility are required for faithful gospel proclamation. Let me say that again. Divine initiative and human responsibility are required for faithful proclamation. If gracious to be gracious, it has to start with God. And it has to not be contingent upon any human effort. Does that make sense? If grace is to be gracious, it has to start with God. It can't start with me. Think about yourself for just a second. Find your worst moment in your life your most shameful moment, the the thing that you were so ashamed of, embarrassed of, in that moment, are you capable of seeking out God? No. So it must start with God. It must start with a God who, who leaves his home, who comes down to the earth, who initiates his servant's righteous life, sacrificial death, so that he would be resurrected so that he can grab those dead men that we were and raise us up out of our sinful deadness to new life. But man also has to be accountable. 
He must, in some sense, be responsible. Think of all the scriptures that walk this tightrope. You might not pick up on these things, but Matthew chapter 11, Jesus makes this statement that we're all still familiar with, right? Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But right before that, in verse 27, he says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Divine Sovereign initiative. Nobody knows the Father except those the Son chooses to reveal him to. And then verse 28, come to me. Come. An open invitation. Let me give you another one. John chapter 6. This one's a lot more simple. John 6, 37. The statement from Jesus says this. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Divine Sovereign grace, we are given to Jesus. We are handed from the Father to the Son. And Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, says, all that you've given to me, I've not lost any except for the Son of perdition. I've not lost anyone. All that the Father gives me, those will come to me. We come, we respond, we show faith. There is divine sovereignty, human responsibility. There are so many more. Go ahead and pull up the next slide here. See, we think of sovereignty and responsibility as on continuum, right? You're either kind of one who emphasizes our personal responsibility or you're somebody who just leans heavy on the sovereignty of God. We think of it as this kind of continuum. But I would suggest that we think of it more like this. Go ahead to the next slide. And we see we're either responsible or irresponsible. We're either believing in a God who's absolutely sovereign or a God who is not sovereign, As we go to the next slide, we'll see what this means for us. In the upper right-hand corner, we see what we call sound doctrine, where God is sovereign, that he initiates divine grace to his people, and that man is also responsible to respond. And when we don't, we, we open ourselves to the liability of God's judgment. See, both of these bookends, if you would, are responsible handling of the scriptures. We have to hold both of those things to be true to the doctrine of the word that's set in front of us. But we find two different distortions, one in the upper left-hand corner and one in the lower right-hand corner. Let's start with the lower right-hand corner. See, we might say that God is sovereign, but man is not responsible. We see this in distortions like hyper-Calvinism. We see this in a distortion called uh, universalism that believes all men will be saved. We minimize the responsibility of man to maximize the sovereignty of God, and we distort the truth. If we go to the upper left-hand corner, we see another distortion, that God is not sovereign, but man is completely responsible. We see this in the eras of Pelagianism and, and some other things throughout church history. We try to muster up and earn God's favor because we don't think God's powerful to do it or has limited himself so that he will not do it, so we just muster up and try to earn God's favor before us. Now, in the bottom left-hand corner is just this denial. God is not sovereign and man is not responsible. This is just an outright denial of anything biblical. But we see these tensions, don't we? We might stop and say, okay, my head's spinning a little bit. We recognize that when God initiates, he opens the mind of men and women like you and me 
He allows us to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. It's a statement in 2 Corinthians 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That you and I, if we are in our sin, it's like God is, or Satan has put blinders on our eyes. We cannot see Jesus for who Jesus truly is. But when God acts upon us, when 1 Peter 1 says he has raised us to new life, or James chapter 1, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. Actually, that's 1 Peter chapter 1. Removes the blinders. He speaks to our heart. He awakens us to the beauty and majesty of Christ so that you and I see for as if the first time God's glory in Christ, that Jesus Christ lived perfectly, crucified, resurrected, so that I could be restored and renewed through grace. That's the act of God. See, the truth this morning is that God is the only one who can make a believer. Do you believe that? God is the only one who can make a Christian. If we walk away with anything this morning, let's walk away with that, that God chose the older to serve the younger, that God had this divine purpose before Esau or Jacob were were anything. They had done neither right nor wrong. They were, you know, older and younger, but God chose the younger to be the one who received the blessing. God's the only one who can initiate in us a faith in him. God's the only one who can make a Christian. In our remaining time this morning, I want to turn our attention and just take this concept, and there's a thousand different applications of this. I just want to take this concept and just focus our attention this morning on parenting. Isn't that all over the face of our text this morning, this issue of parenting? And some of us are just so bent out of shape as, as Christian parents. We want so badly for our children to come to faith in Christ that we just would do anything. We, we would go to any length. We would do any amount of work or effort to just make our children believe. But we have to come back to this principle that only God can make a Christian. Parents, let's be those that trust that God makes Christians, not us. There's a way for us to try and parent with this heavy-handedness, isn't there? We're just going to control every detail of this child's life. Where We're just going to uh, just insert ourselves. I think the term is helicopter parents, right? We become Christian helicopter parents where we just kind of hover over them and we just try and redirect everything that we see. And we just, uh, we, we're nail-biting. We're, we're wringing our hands over the state of our children's hearts. We just got to stop and just rest. Say, only God makes a Christian. I can rest in this fact. Only God can make a Christian. It doesn't negate my responsibility to train, to teach, to discipline. But only God can make my son, my daughter, believe in him. Now here's the thing. There's hope in that statement, isn't there? No matter how far you find your child to be from God, if God is the sovereign initiator of grace, he's never too far. You're never so far gone from the gospel that God can't reach out and pluck you out of your circumstance. 
Your sin is never so hardening to you that God can't reach out and, and save that individual. Parents, we've got to stop. We've got to trust. Here's the truth. If, if you try to manipulate your child to become a Christian, to, to trust deeply in Jesus, I guarantee you, you're going to make someone who puts on an air of Christianity, but internally becomes something far different. There are just consequences to that action that I think we got to talk openly about, that when we try to manipulate our kids through our strength and our effort to become believers in Christ, it pushes them in sometimes the wrong directions. So I wanted to give us three actions that we could hang our hats, right? Divine initiative, human responsibility. How do we put those two things together in our parenting? First, Let's pray like only God can make a Christian. Let's pray like only God can make our children believe. Let me ask you, do you have regular patterns of prayer for your children? Do you pray with them in regard to their faith? Do you pray that God would work in their hearts? Or when you tuck them in at bed, to bed at night and you pray with them, or when you pray at dinner, is it just uh, we pray for school, we pray for the test, we pray for Aunt Lucy's cats and all these other things? Or do you pray for rich faith to be brought about in your children? See, so we can pray for, for our kids to come to faith in Jesus. We can hand these things that are outside of our capability to a God who is very capable to make them Christians, to make them believers. It might not always come to fruition, but we can trust in the goodness of our God. Secondly, let's discipline like only God can make a Christian. Here's what we do, Right? I heard Paul Tripp using this analogy where he said, you know, you have a teenager who uh, they come to you, it's 9.30 at night, and they said, I have a science report due tomorrow, right? And they say, okay, you're kind of ticked off, you're perturbed. Okay, but what do you need? Well, I need poster board, and I need markers, and I need 12 seed-bearing plants that have been under UV rays for three weeks, right? very funny. You should go back and listen to the audio, but he's describing this moment of frustration with our children. In that moment, you want to kind of lash out, and and what he highlights in that moment is that we respond out of self-righteousness. You say, I surely wouldn't have done this thing that you're doing right now, and we say, you should have known better. You should have done better. You should have planned better, and all the while, we gloss over our sins We don't see that we also need grace and mercy from God. Is our discipline of our children directed at seeing Christians formed in them? Not at at, at just venting my anger, not at getting the right behavior, not at any of those things, but rather to shape and form a rich faith in Jesus Christ. So we pray like only God can make a Christian. We discipline like only God can make a Christian. We instruct like only God can make a Christian. When you teach your children about the Bible, when you open up the Word of God with them, do you throw it down in frustration because no one's listening? And I guarantee you're going to have times where nobody's listening, right? 
We instruct with patience because we know that their sinful heart is in line with our sinful heart. You know that you're their parents. They got it from somewhere, right? And the sinful heart that rests in your chest that beats, it exists in them too. And they want to reject the word of God. And so they need divine grace and they need to hear Romans 10, right? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. And as you're continually just setting forth the gospel uh, in, in just routine moments throughout the day, as you're taking a walk and you're looking at the, the beautiful sunset, you say, hey, isn't God good to give us that? But it's also in these formal moments where you're teaching them the scriptures and the Bible at dinner or whatever else it may be. I got to be honest, my wife and I were just talking uh, this week, and we said, hey, you know, I think we're doing a really good job of talking to our kids in informal moments, but we stink at formal moments. Like, we, we sat down, and we opened up the Bible this week, and, and my youngest looked at me, and he said, how long has it been since we've done this? Oh, jeez. So I'm not presenting this as someone who's arrived. I'm saying we instruct, like only God can make a Christian, but we have to instruct, don't we? So we we pray, we discipline, we instruct our kids all with this faith that God can pull them out of their sinful graves and raise them to new life, that, that God, just as he pulled us out of our sinful graves and raised us to new life, we trust that God can do that with our kids, that he can do that with our neighbors, that he can do that with our coworkers. That's why we speak the gospel. That's why we enter into this world and we say, God is doing a work. He's making all things new. And so we proclaim faithfully the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus so that we can see the miracle happen, so that we can see the renewal of God in his kingdom and his purpose, because we know that initiative, divine initiative, and human responsibility come together to see God's purpose in the world. Let's be those who just put all of our chips to the center of of the table and say, God, we're trusting that you alone can make believers. Let's be those that bank on the sovereignty of God. I want to pray to that end. Lord, make us strong in our faith. Allow us to rest in your rich sovereignty. Lord, you, you say in the book of Isaiah that your arm is not too short to save. And so we trust that you would save. We trust that you would confirm your salvation in us as, we, as your spirit testifies that our spirit, that we're sons of God. We trust that you would save those Loved ones that are near to us, our family, our children. We trust that you would be working in our friends and co-workers. We trust that what you say in Colossians is true. The gospel is always bearing fruit and increasing. So God, give us eyes to see. Allow us to see the fruit of the gospel in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.